When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, out there, rock and rollers, welcome to the 158th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. The Wolf, and I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime and co-host from the East Coast of the United States of America, Gary Action Jackson. And I myself am back in America these days. For those who've been listening a long time, you know, I spent a few years in London and that's where we started our podcast, took a little break and went over to Amsterdam for a bit, but now I am back in the U.S., but it doesn't change our show in that we love talking about hard rock, classic rock, heavy metal, prog rock, early MTV, 80s bands, and we look at the dichotomy between bands that make it in the U.S. versus the U.K., and vice versa. Because being in the UK, I got to explore bands and histories of bands that I was less familiar with because some people are huge on one side of the pond, eh, but not so much the other for various reasons. And we always like to explore that and kind of figure out why that might be the case. And you know that we've been on this prog journey for a while that I've been dragging Jackson along, trying to learn more about this genre and the heavy hitters in prog. And of course, we've had members of Yes on the show and Pink Floyd and Genesis and Asia and Emerson, Lake and Palmer over the years and trying to understand this music better. But we never really got into King Crimson. It is kind of the most heady of heady progressive rock, if you ask me. It's almost so complicated that it doesn't make sense, especially to the uninformed or casual listener. So we've tried to get into it more to better understand why do people love this music? Because not everybody does, but then once they do, they get it in a big way and then they love it. They love it more than anything else. And we're really psyched today to have the director of a new film, a documentary about King Crimson over the years. The film is In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50, and it's directed by Toby Amy's and Toby is joining us from the UK today to talk to us about making this film and getting to know the members of the band, particularly the leader, the founder, the guitar player, and the man most responsible for the music of King Crimson over the years. That's Robert Fripp. Now, Toby's had a pretty cool career and that he's worked for MTV on both sides of the pond, both MTV Europe and MTV in the U.S. He's worked in record companies. He's worked at radio stations. He's had a cool life. And he made a documentary film called The Man Whose Mind Exploded. And I guess Robert approached him to make the film about King Crimson because he didn't know King Crimson music that well. And Toby endeavored to bring out the story of what did it mean to be in King Crimson. He has current members of the band. He had past members of the band. He had great access to everybody. And of course, once you start a documentary, you never know exactly which way it's going to go. You don't know what the end product is really going to be until you get in there and get your hands dirty. And I think that he found a few surprises on the, along the way that will be interesting to you all. So that's why we wanted to have Toby on the show, and he was gracious enough to come on. 
And before we get to Toby here, got a little bit of business to take care of. As usual, we always mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, a network of about 100 different shows. Music related, there really is something in there for everyone. If you want to follow them, check out PantheonPodcast.com or follow at Pantheon Pods. And we are sponsored by RareVinyl.com, who's based in the UK, and they ship records all around the world. They have over 250,000 items in stock. They have a great rating from Trust Radius. They've been doing this for 40 years, folks. And look, it's the holidays. The shopping season is coming to an end here. You better get your stuff together. So get to rarevinyl.com or rarevinyl.co.uk or rarevinyl wherever you can find it. Use the code UGLY and you can save 10% off your orders. Now that's a one-time code. So don't just go buy one Taylor Swift CD Go buy a bunch of stuff. Buy stuff from your, your nephews, your nieces, your grandkids. Buy some stuff for yourself. You deserve it. That'll make sure that you get what you want. But use code UGLY at rarevinyl.com. Save a big 10% instead of a small 10%. Now back to King Crimson. Yeah, the leader, Robert Fripp, has been a little prickly over the years in interviews. And according to past Ben members, it's been difficult to work with kind of a taskmaster say you must do things the right way but not a taskmaster who necessarily provided guidance he preferred you figure it out on your own and if it's right he'll tell you and if it's wrong oh boy he'll tell you that as well and since there hadn't been a really definitive documentary about this band i think what toby put together was really special and it's available now it started i think december 1st on video on demand so it's been out for a bit you can find it a lot of different places just search for In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50 by Toby Amies. So let's get to it. We're talking today with director Toby Amies on In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50. Here on The Wolf. So we do occasionally get to talk to not just musicians, Jackson, but people in the entertainment industry who create images, not just sound. Mm-hmm. And like we uh, got to talk to Ryan Condal a couple of times from House of the Dragon, because uh, he's a big rock fan, big Led Zeppelin fan. But this opportunity to speak with Toby about In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50, I couldn't pass this up because, well, first of all, as you know, I am a sucker for a good rock band documentary. I believe you are too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't even have to be one of my favorite bands. It's like, if it's done well, it's going to be fascinating because the act of keeping a rock band together for decades is a monumental task. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to do. You know, there's going to be people in and out for the most part. And they're going to be, the, the story is going to be interesting because there's never just one side to it. Well, that's right. And there are a few sides to this one. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, I, I remember seeing the ads for this when I was living in London. And I don't know when it was 2019, 2020. I don't know when I first saw them. But as soon as I saw them, I'm like, ooh, I got to see this. You know, I, I got I to get the story behind this band that's been going on for so long. And the mercurial Robert Fripp, is he really going to let people behind the curtain and see the little man pulling the levers? So I, we appreciate the opportunity. 
And it was interesting to see everybody kind of interact, not even so much with him, but around him. Yeah, he's he's the ringleader, but mm-hmm. um, but he's not the one out there like, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. He's more the one in the back like, don't right. screw this up. Yeah, okay. see that guy in the back? He's in charge. Don't make him angry. Yeah, don't piss him off. <laughs> Hi, this is Oliver Whiteman, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I'm Mac, and that's Jackson, and hey, welcome to the Ugly American Werewolf in London. Neither of you look that ugly to me. Well, that's why why I'm way back here. (laughs) Okay, all right, fair enough. Obviously, look, we want to dive into this brilliant documentary you've made about King Crimson. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. But you've had an interesting career before then, and we are children of the MTV generation, so we need to know about working at MTV. Like, okay, yeah, you worked at Arizona with Jimmy Kimmel. Great. Yeah, I hear he went on and did something. But working at MTV, both in Europe and in America, is a big deal to us. So talk to us a little bit about that, please. Um, Well, to be honest, I used to watch MTV when I was at the University of Kansas. I remember Mm -hmm. going over to my friend's house who had cable and uh, I just went over there to watch Yo! MTV Raps when it came out. (laughs) Sure. 
I loved that. And, and Lawrence, Kansas didn't have an urban station. So it was very hard to access new hip hop. Um, and I'm very fond of hip hop. And so I started my relationship with MTV started out because I was an active viewer, because at that time, without the internet, you were very much beholden to the whims of the I've never I don't like using this word, but the curators, you know, the people who had their hands on the tap, and yeah, I I worked my first job out of university. My first proper job out of university was at a runner as a runner at a, a British sort of equivalent of MTV called the Power Station. Okay, and so I learned how to make music television. And the principal thing that I learned was it's not that fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> it really isn't, you know. And and nevertheless, people seem determined to fuck it up. And <laughs> yeah. so, so I used to find it, I used to find it very upsetting because music cinema is my profession, but music is my passion. And, and so I used to get cross that people seem to be treating what to me was the pro most precious thing in the world at that time with something close, something close to contempt or ignorance or laziness or a combination of all of those things. So whenever I watched MTV, I tended to watch it with a certain amount of frustration because I was just like, it would be so much easier to make this a little bit better. Mm. And, and so when I eventually ended up working there, I came to MTV Europe from, I had a job working for MCA Records, also known as the Music Cemetery of America. <laughs> and, and so I came to MTV Europe with something of a mission, and that was just to sort of make, make it a bit better or, or, or like be a bit more respectful to the music and also this strong sense of responsibility that I think everyone in a position of power back then in the 90s should have had, which okay. is that people didn't have access to everything that was ever recorded, much like they, you know, like they do now. Like now, yeah. You know, so it was our duty to make sure that we gave people access to as much of the good stuff as possible. And I'd come there f with a background in evil top 40 radio, right. where, you know, we literally approached the, the rotation of a very small amount of records with a certain degree of science, you know, you'd work out that basically you could just about get away with playing one of your hit records every 50 minutes. Wow. Um, but that would drive people crazy. So when I got to MTV, I had a sort of understanding of what audiences wanted and what they would put up with. Plus, I had an intuitive approach to music. And I just, I just, I mean, I've just still really loved music. And so it was really important to me that we did as good a job as we possibly could. Unfortunately, the last job I had at MTV in the States was working on something called MTV Live, which right. then went on to become TRL. Right. Um, which I think is one of the most damaging things that's happened to music and culture ever since. So I have yeah. to take a small amount of responsibility for that. You can shoot me now if you like. Well, isn't it just that the UK and the European audience are more open to more diverse kind of music than we are in America? I, I, I don't know. I mean... Certainly the executives seem to think that way. I mean, when they're programming MTV, you could see there's a clip of Mark Goodman interviewing David Bowie in, I don't know, 1983 or something like that. And Bowie's like, why don't you play more black artists? Why don't you have more R&B on there? And Mark's like, well... We think the people in the Midwest don't want to see that kind of thing, or at least that's what the executives say. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, my answer to that would be twofold, I suppose. I think it's in the nature of capitalism to create monopolies, not free markets. And so as soon as people have, con well, as soon as people are in a position of power in a capitalist framework, I think they seek to create a monopoly. And I think that the music media in the States definitely did that. And MTV mm -hmm. was a classic example of that. I mean, it you know, it's only competition really was competition that it created for itself, you know, particularly with VH1. I guess you could call BET competition right. for it as well. But but then again, if MTV is playing a mostly sort of white-only playlist at, the, at that time, how much competition would BET be for it? You know, so I think, I think there's a certain element of that. And yes, I think that ever since I've worked in, in mass media, I've noticed that there is... It, it was it was always crazy to me then when I was working in Top 40 Radio that we would spend a fortune trying to work out what the audience wanted. But at the same time, we'd never really go out on the streets or into the clubs to sort of get a feel for what the audience wanted. And certainly when I was working at MTV Europe, because there was a significant language barrier or a perceived one, you know, people would be like, your audience speaks Flemish or, or, or German or French okay. or Italian mm -hmm. or Swedish or something. Stop using these complicated words. And I was like, well, A, what better way to learn English than often idiosyncratic alternate alternative music show. And B, I was like, I'm not going to talk down to my audience. I'm not going to presume that they don't care or that they don't know or whatever. And, and if they've got to keep up a bit, then so be it, because I don't want to patronize them and I want to give them the best stuff I possibly can. And whether that's like curating and creating the best possible playlists for the shows that I work or, or, you know, or even speaking the best possible English. I think it's really important that people presume the best of their audiences because I think that's how you make the best art. And certainly with the King Crimson film, what I've wanted to do is not tell my audience what they should think or know about King Crimson, is mm -hmm. I want to give them an opportunity to make up their own mind about King Crimson and particularly a certain figure at the heart of it all. Oh, yes, yes. And, oh, and it's well, interesting you say that because, yeah, it, watching this movie, there it, it's... There's a lot to unpack, and there really is no easy answer to how they got there. Everybody is very layered. It's very complex. There is a lot going on in this band. Mm. I, th I think, certainly, I've, I've made two feature-length documentaries now, and they're both very different in their way, but one of the things, one of the things that they have in common is at the core of them is a very human dilemma. In my first film, it was how do you care for somebody who's not caring for themselves while still allowing them their humanity, not taking their agency away. So that's a film about caring. That's where its universality is. And with the King Crimson film, the core unanswerable question at it is what are you willing to sacrifice in order to bring something of beauty and meaning into the world and that doesn't have to be red it could also be a chocolate cake it's like mm. you know i'm gonna <laughs> if i need to do something worthwhile it's gonna cost me how much am i willing to give in order to make that thing happen and that is you know certainly that was my experience of working in that creative space it's not like i joined king crimson but i was sort of immersed in that world mm -hmm. yeah and i had a sense of of what it's like to be in that creative space and you know at the end of the day my response to the whole thing is that i know that i've made a film that that moves people and resonates for people and seems to to give people a greater understanding of king crimson at the same 
same time, if I ask myself the question, was it worth it? The answer is <laughs> just. <laughs> just, just. Well, of course, the first film you uh, refer to is The Man Whose Mind Exploded, and now you received a lot of praise for that. But as soon as I saw the, I think it was either ads, maybe even on BBC when I was living in England, for your King Crimson documentary, I'm like, ooh, I've got to see this, because you don't see much from Robert Fripp over the years. He's kind of a mysterious person, and eh, until, you know, COVID, was. when he had... He and well, <laughs> fair enough. But until COVID, when he and Toya started making these fun videos, it was just kind of like he's the guy kind of locked away in his lair until he mm. decides to come on stage. Now, did he approach you or did you approach him about this? Project? He approached me. Yeah. I, he wanted I, to do um, it. Robert would say innocent. I would say ignorant of King Crimson. Because <laughs> um, I was sort of, I, I was I was a bit too young to be a punk, but I was brought up listening to punks on the radio. Okay. And they were telling us that prog rock bands were evil, you mm -hmm. know. But, I mean, they were referring much more to sort of Genesis and, and Floyd. And yes, and yeah. ELP and, and so on, the sort of more kind of the less abrasive side of prog, I suppose. So so I'd never really paid any attention to King Crimson, although I was actually, I was a little bit aware of Adrian Ballou's solo work because I um, had friends at Rhino Records. He used to send me records and, oh, okay. and Adrian's back catalogue was put out on Rhino, I believe. And then I um, had also seen Bill Rieflin play with the Revolting Cox back okay. in like mm -hmm. 1989. Um, nice. And but then with regard to and I knew Robert's work with Eno and Bowie, but mm -hmm. but I just I didn't know anything about King Crimson, and I think that was part of the appeal. The other part of the appeal was that I was local; is that my parents live on the same street as him, so so oh, I'd known him socially, and we did a little bit of work together on a Radio Four documentary I made about archiving. Oh, cool! And so Robert had seen the man whose mind exploded, knew me socially, and I think felt. <laughs> up until that point comfortably <laughs> so so that's how it came about so he liked the man whose mind exploded i think he thought that because the the form and approach of that film is a little unusual that i wasn't going to make a traditional kind of filmed wikipedia article about the band and as a consequence um you know he felt i think he felt that we would come up with something you know more appropriate to the progressive nature of king crimson i think that's the that's the distinction i make i try very hard not to speak for robert but probably a good you know idea. my sense is that if something's progressive then the, there's the idea of evolution and change in it which is really important whereas if something's just prog if it's just put in a box and some it's already done you know it doesn't mm. go any further okay interesting yeah gotcha well i mean that's that's the thing about king crimson's particular brand of music we've had a lot of prog greats on our show over the years i mean mm. people from yes and genesis and you know asia and, and things like emerson lake and palmer mm. and uh, i don't know it seems like it, it has to be very precise like in talking to jeff downs like do you ever improvise? Like, I can't improvise. It has to be exactly the way it is on the record because everyone else is depending on me. But yeah. with King Crimson, it's like mistakes are verboten. It's like you get the stare if you make a mistake. And yet it's those mistakes that make that night special in its own way. Right? Yeah. 
Well, I guess that all the all the potential for those mistakes. I think and that's the sense that I got. Again, I can't I can't really speak for any of the musicians in the band. You know, most of all Robert, but I I had the sense that because the set the set list changes every night because the music's so complicated because there is always the potential for improvisation in certain songs that there are more things that could go wrong. You know, it's right. not like you're you you appear to be a fan of the Rolling Stones from what I can tell. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and not to deride the Rolling Stones, but but you know, not much is gonna go wrong if they go out and play satisfaction tomorrow night, is there? You know, there's not there's not a lot of potential for the whole thing to go tits up. Right. Whereas if you're doing something like fracture, mm. there is that potential. And that that is something that I think it's something that I came away with an enormous amount of respect for the for the component musicians of King Crimson as a result of is that knowing that they're not just bashing out the hits every night, you know, they're actually taking risks and and there's something magnificent about being in your seventies, you know, and going out there and not just bashing out the hits, going out there and and you know, struggling through a very, very complicated piece of music. Yeah. Gavin told me such a funny thing, you know, that, that the stages that they play on are so big mm -hmm. that if Pat hits a snare, by the time the sound has reached Gavin, <laughs> it's out of time. And they've so got Jeremy the in between the have, two of them, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and <laughs> so they have to have the in-ears, you know, mm -hmm. so they can, they're getting everything simultaneously. But I mean, that, that not only did that say something about the size of the stage to me, it said something about the, you know, the minute increments of time that they're working in, mm. you know, which precision. Yeah. Which yeah. really have done my head in, but. Oh God. These, these guys are like, um, you know, they're like Olympic athletes, as, as, mm. as Robert says. Or, yeah. you know, I, I think of them as like almost like as being, I think I said to some of my friends, the analogy, analogy is that if you get asked to, to join King Crimson, for a musician, that's like becoming a made man in the mm -hmm. mafia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that, I think that definitely came through with the interaction and the questions that you had for the, the musicians that nobody was comfortable they're very, they're all very, very good at what they do. They're all top notch musicians, but no one is ever comfortable because there is such an, the, the, because the music is so hard, it changes so often. And the audience expectation is 1000%. They're always on edge as far as how this is going to, how this is going to turn out because there is mm. such an expectation on them in the band and from the, from the audience. Yeah, there's no complacency. There's no room mm. for any complacency, which I think must be, on the one hand, kind of a nightmare. On the mm. other hand, that's one of the things, like I said, that creates so much respect in me for them is that then they're, they're not just sitting back in the um, musical equivalent of a comfy armchair taking it easy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, but one of my mottos is if you uh, if you stop learning, you start dying, you know. So I think mm -hmm. it's really important. I think that that like when I was 
starting to make the film, there's a there was a phrase that that I think is both sexist and ageist and racist, which is male, pale, and stale. <laughs> but it you know it's obvious what its application is to, is to King Crimson. But I think that it, it's nevertheless that's a really that that whether or not people think that old old men are are culturally and socially irrelevant now i think that's a they're an interesting audience and i i think it's really great to see people of a particular age still taking risks still taking creative risks still being determined to to learn yeah. so i think that if you can manage to remove your prejudices against old white men then <laughs> you can see that you know these people are at least struggling through a lot of the things that the rest of us struggle through. I mean, I mm. can't really sort of define myself against old white men. That's what I am as well. But, um, <laughs> but I think like having the, you know, having the gumption and the energy and the courage to get out there and do it when everybody else is taking it easy, I think is, you know, admirable. Mm -hmm. of respect. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, uh, the humanity of everybody involved came out also. You had some side stories about, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but the different members of the band, what they've been through, their career, how they got there. Some of them had been there before and are there again now. And there were conflicts in between and just how they, what it comes down to is they love playing music. They love playing at a high level and all of the, going through all of this is worth it to them. For the yeah, product. and the other thing, the other thing about them that I think is so amazing is that for most of them, it's all they can do. Mm. I mean, it's just like it's really. I was just fascinated and quite shocked, and then and then very admiring of of Pat and Tony, who almost as soon as a King Crimson tour would stop, they would be on the road with Stickmen, mm -hmm. you know, and and I don't think they're doing it because they need the money. You know, Tony Levin's driving the fucking van. <laughs> <laughs> on these, you know, South American and European tours they're doing. I just think it's, they've just got to play. I just, mm -hmm. I think it was, you know, it's such an education seeing, seeing not only their commitment, Robert refers to, to music as a vocation, a calling, you know, and it was like they couldn't do anything else but mm -hmm. this right. at the same yeah. time. You know, which yeah, is... mo most most people have jobs that they they I'm sure they enjoy on some level, but you know you do it to make money to support your to family. Yeah, correct. Yeah, this this is not the case for these guys. No, they, God they knows there to. are plenty. Yeah, there are plenty of musicians that give you that impression, aren't there? That right, just they're right. in it for the money. But these mm -hmm. guys, no, they're in it for the music. Yeah. Yeah, that's Absolutely. that's what I was put on earth to do. I have to yeah. do this. Yeah, I've got yeah. no choice and, but this. And Tony Levin playing the Chapman stick. He may be the best in the world on the planet. Mm. He's certainly one of the best bass players on the planet. It's yeah. the, the level of musicianship is so high. However, because of that, the demands are high. And obviously over 50 years, there's been a lot of turnover. And you have a great line in there from Robert that I have to repeat. It's like, why is there so much band turnover, Robert? He goes, the problems don't lie with me. The problems lie elsewhere. Yeah, I don't have the problems. The yeah. problems lie elsewhere. Yeah. Yes. I don't have the problem. The problems lie elsewhere. That's I don't very... know if that's true, but I'm sure from his point of view, it's 100% accurate. No comment. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, well, it's his baby. It's his baby, right? <laughs> you have to treat his baby with all utmost and due respect. And honestly, I, I, and and again, I, I, I learned early on in the process of making this film that I was not going to remain sane if I tried to work out what's going on in Robert Fripp's brain. <laughs> Good move. That that said, I got the strong sense that it's not like Robert's got some master plan. And and everyone's in trouble if they don't, you know, follow the master plan. It's more like Robert is just. It, I, I have the sense that he almost wants to be surprised by what other people come up with. But then again, that there are there are parameters with regard to what what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. Right. And the, I think the frustrating but also kind of magical thing about King Crimson is nobody knows what those parameters are. And I'm not even sure if Robert knows what those parameters are until, you know, somebody comes up against them or crosses them or, or whatever. So it was more like I got the sense that he was like, I don't I don't want to tell you what to do. That's, you know, that's <laughs> going to take my attention away from something I want to worry about. You mm. get on with doing what you want to do and, and you know, please make it the right thing. And if it's if it's something I've never conceived of, so much the better. You know, and it's sort of, it's certainly that's something that, that's part of the methodology that I've adopted into my practice as well. When I work with other people, I'm sort of like, well, I'd rather not tell you what to do. I'd rather you came up with something that was a an expression of of yourself and your talent and your skills that fitted perfectly into this hole that we've got here. Um, makes I think it makes a much more interesting art, and it does make life a bit easier if you have that approach. Oh, very People good. can also drive themselves mad in that in that space, though, particularly if there is the sense, and I think this is accurate with King King Crimson, that there is no direct guidance as to what you're going to be doing. But if you do the wrong thing, you get to know about it. Whatever you do before you join King Crimson, would you please not do it when you're in the band? You're required really to develop a new style, if you can, specifically for that group. The implication being that you would play in that way in King Crimson and in King Crimson alone. And yes, was an endless debate about should it be F natural in the bass with a G sharp on top from the organ or should it be the other way around. In King Crimson, almost nothing was said. You're just supposed to know. Which is has to be maddening because, yeah, you, you, want, you want to do the right thing so badly. But what is the right thing? I don't know. Well, well when, we, when I see it, I'll let you know. Yeah, I think it would be easy to say that that Fripp is this is this monster of a person who's just this taskmaster, and you know he's like I said he's the problem. But I think in this movie it really comes through that that's really not the case. Is that he he is a he is as much a perfectionist as anything else. Like he's as hard on himself as anyone could ever be, and all he wants to do is make this perfect creation i mean he said it at the beginning i don't think i've i've had the perfect show yet i don't have the perfect anything i'm always striving to get there so i think he's he drives himself nuts in search of perfection more than anybody else could <laughs> yes <laughs> although i was watching the film with a friend of mine who's made several films about cults okay and he said that every every cult leader says whatever i'm putting you through i'm putting myself mm. through it so much more. <laughs> but I, I mean, I also think, I think um, my, my sense was that that, that that is true. I'm not sure that Robert would ever, I think he's been at it for so long that he knows that perfection is impossible. It's something mm. to strive for, but it's not actually what you want to achieve. I also think Robert is, 
is psychologically better prepared for that space than some of the people who he introduces to it. And that, that definitely came through with a couple of people too. You could tell yeah. that, yeah. You know, Mel Collins. And, and I, and I do one. Yeah. And I do wonder if, if you've, if you've sort of been watching people drive themselves crazy in a creative space that you are responsible for, I, I do wonder at which point you also bear some responsibility for what people do to themselves in that place. Yeah. Mm. Fair question. But I, I mean, I also, you know, I do, I'm not party to all of the discussions he's had on a one-to-one -one and private level with, with his bandmates. So I, you know, I can't, I can't say for sure. All I can say is that my experience of it is I did drive myself nearly crazy in it in, you know, in a search for, for some kind of perfection. And, you know, it's not a space I want to rush back into. <laughs> I understand that. For sure. That said, obviously, I've made some of the best work I've, I've ever made as a filmmaker in this context. So and I don't mean that in an arrogant way, because I can if you want me to, I can point out every single flaw in that film. <laughs> God knows there are plenty of them. But well, I, let's I, make I, that a different show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Self-hatred. Yeah. <laughs> what I got wrong. Don't worry. I've done 160 of these shows. I can point out plenty of mistakes over a few years. Okay. But mm. no, you did get something out of Mel Collins there because he was there in the early 70s and had a bad time with Robert. And he kind of comes clean about it. Like, yeah, Robert and I, he really wasn't very good to me. And then mm. Mel went on to do all sorts of things. Mel's very much in demand, you know, including play on a record that you've got just behind your right ear. Absolutely true. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, play with uh, Dire Straits on my favorite live album, Alchemy, you know, and, and do all sorts of great stuff. But then he he comes back to it. And he's like, you know, this really does allow me to do everything that I can do. And mm. yes, I talked to Robert and he does feel bad about what went down in the 70s and how he's grown out of that. But it seems like Adrian, who I first came to via MTV, I think via 120 Minutes when they were on one of those 80s hiatuses of King Crimson, right. he was a solo artist. I don't know if bitter is the right word, but it's like he said, I, I thought we were partners and I was just a guy in his band. And I think that hurt him a little. And then Robert might come back and say, well, I don't think Adrian wants to be part of an ensemble. But then Adrian's like, well, I think Robert needs me. I, I think he needs me back. So there's something unrequited there. There certainly is. And as far as I'm aware, Adrian still hasn't seen the film. Okay. But that hasn't stopped him commenting on the comment content of the film. <laughs> Interesting. So I think the thing is, with when anybody goes into a documentary, they become an archetype. They become a character. They're no longer mm. themselves. They are a representation of somebody who's very like them. And what I, you know, the second after we list everybody who's in the film in the credits. So the first credit is everybody who's in the film. The second credit is everybody who's not in the film. Mm. And eventually, after a couple of years, I got a definitive answer for the number of people who've been in King Crimson. And that figure is 19. And there's no way that you can do justice to 19 characters in a film and documentary. You just have to zip through them all. And most of most people, particularly the people who are no longer with us, you know, that their contribution would have been reduced to a few seconds on screen, a bit of archive and, you know, either somebody saying something nice about them or, you know, just a little bit of text about them. And and that was not going to make for an entertaining and informative film. You know, I was I was determined to make a work of cinema that looked at the human condition using King Crimson as the medium. That may sound pretentious, but it's true. 
you know. So what you've got in the film is sometimes you have one person speaking for another in the sense that you have, you know, somebody talking about playing a particular instrument in the 70s incarnation of the band is also, there's a degree to which that's analogous in playing in the current band and, and vice versa, and that's how that's how it works. So with regard to Adrian's involvement in the film, that he's, to some extent, he's talking about his personal experience, but also he's talking about what it's like to work in a creative partnership with, with Robert. And I think that it must be very difficult to know, again, in this uncertain space where you're not sure where the boundaries are, to, to know you know, what you can rely on and what, what you can't rely on. Um, so I don't think that... <laughs> I was going to say something, but in fact what I'm going to say is I don't think it's my place to comment on the relationship between David, uh, sorry, between um, Robert and Adrian. All right. At, at this point, suffice it to say that I'm sure you guys are aware online, a lot of people think that that was the best iteration of the band, and 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 that they miss it. And I think that um, I think that Adrian's critique that there was no new music coming out of the band mm. uh, w was an interesting one to have in there. Yeah, that was that was a very interesting thing to have him say, just kind of a slight, like it was a, almost like a throwaway line, but not really, because I think he, he really believes that, that he enjoyed his time in the band and wishes he could still be there. Yeah. Well, it took several months to to edit that film, so I can tell you that there are no throwaway lines in it at all. Okay, okay. <laughs> I know that. Sure. Everything is in there for a very particular reason, yeah. often several. Throwaway as far as like, not not like... <laughs> he kind of just slid that one in like, yeah you know, like mm, yeah we're just gonna you know the the mm. kind of the dig underneath well so, i think it's really important in the film particularly when you've got like a central character who's very very strong like robert yes i think it's really important to demonstrate both in both in terms of how you structure the film that you need some balance in there but also i think it's fair to say that 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 king crimson is not just Robert Fripp, you know, mm. and I think it's really, again, I don't like to speak for Robert, but I got the strong impression that that's the last thing Robert Fripp wanted was the Robert Fripp band, you know, that he's like, he's the curator of what the idea of King Crimson is. And that, and that is a, is a mutable notion. It's constantly mm. changing anyway, which could be quite frustrating to deal with, particularly if somebody says that they asked you to make the film to tell them what King Crimson is. And it's constantly changing notion. But um, King Crimson is Robert Fripp plus other people. And the other people, I think, also, they change the idea of what King Crimson is. And, 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 and Robert makes musical responses to them as well. It's not a one-way street by any means. And that's one of the things that makes it so interesting as a band, I think. It's not just an extension of one person's ideas, id and ego. It's a conversation between that person and, and, and other people he brings into the mix, I get the sense and again this is not me speaking for him but this is i get the sense that 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 is what he wants i think you're right now obviously anytime you go into a project you have certain expectations about okay it's i want to explore this or it's going to we're going to take on this idea or whatever but then getting to know bill and his medical condition and then ultimately him passing away must have changed the way you approached it on some level. It's like, okay, suddenly we're not just talking about a band anymore. We're talking about this man's life and how he wants to spend the end of his life. And that's making music in this band. He could go do a lot of different things. He has options. 
Yeah. But this is what he wanted to do. He even said, I think this is what I made for. Mm. I mean, a guy who's played with all sorts of great bands, as you mentioned, the Rolling Cox, REM, whomever. Mm. But he's like, this is this is where I'm supposed to be. And he just seemed like a brave son of a bitch. I mean, he, he must have been in terrible pain. You didn't see him wincing. You didn't really hear him complain much about it. And somebody said, yes, I, I am in terrible pain all the time. Not like, oh, my God, I'm in broke today. He's like, nope, mm. I'm in pain all the time. And yet I continuing on because this is what I need to do. Yeah. He's a magnificent individual and and also one of only two punks in King Crimson. <laughs> Can you guess who the other is? Is Baloo a punk? No, it's not Bruford. Is Jacko well, a punk? One member of King Crimson is both, has both played live and on record with The Damned and also Blondie and also Daryl Hall. It's Robert. Robert's the punk in Crimson. He's got a he's got a punk rock attitude. But um, so so Bill and I Bill and I had similar sensibilities, and we also had friends in common. But when when I became aware of his condition, which was quite early on, I I realised that and and this is with the proviso that it's really fucked up to talk about your friends you know, stage four cancer diagnosis in narrative terms. But Understandable. I'm going to continue to do that, but it is fucked up to do so. I was aware that because of that thing you mentioned, that, you know, he was choosing to spend his final days on Earth playing in King Crimson, it was as a very effective way of showing my audience why King Crimson mattered. And mm. I think that that's something that you're always looking to do in a documentary is, you know, why does, why is this important? Why, why should I watch this? And so if you've got somebody who's choosing to spend the last of their time involved in an activity, it demonstrates that that activity is important, if only to them. And, and you know, the fact that he spoke so eloquently and, and honestly and bravely about it, obviously that, that creates very powerful cinema. It did. And... You know, the film starts with a very short shot of a metronome in a skull. <laughs> and I could not make it any more obvious that this is a film about time and death and the relationship between the two of them. It's um, one of the alternative titles I had for the film was Time Lords. Because it, you know, it struck me that these guys are, as we were discussing earlier, that they're, they're, they're capable of, of making these infinitesimal or nearly infinitesimal measurements of time and at the same time they're doing so in in the deepening shadow of their own mortality i mean what bill is going through is just a more extreme version of what everybody's going through in that band but also in the world you know we the moment we die the clock starts ticking the sand is running through the hourglass that's right and so everybody effectively in that band is choosing to do what bill reeflin is doing but it's just bill's version of it is much more extreme so he he provided a way of unlocking everybody's experience being in a very grueling and demanding rock star uh, rock band in their in their 60s and 70s so and also the fact that he'd done a one of robert's guitar craft courses meant that i think he understood some of the more transcendental underpinnings and some perhaps some of the more dogmatic underpinnings of King Crimson, the sort of Robert's philosophical approach to the band in such a way that he could both cope with being in the band, you know, very well. I don't mm. think he sort of found it frustrating in maybe the way that some of the other members of the band did, but also, you know, he sort of got the point a bit more. And I think he was also capable of, of expressing those ideas without them needing to be obfuscated 
in a mm. way that maybe sometimes they were in my experience it was when robert was talking about it, it was quite difficult to get him to talk about some of the more um transcendental elements of the bands in in a way that would translate to film i mean the thing that i've tried to do with this film more than anything is keep it immediate is i want to feel like when you're watching it in the cinema or if you're watching it at home that you're trapped in the same moment as the band i don't want it to be i was watching a film about an artist yesterday and they'd interviewed them in that such a way that they you're just seeing the sort of they're on three-quarter view and they're looking over to the interviewer at the camera and even just doing that you you turn these people into objects and and it's really important to me in my films that, that my subjects are subjects that we have a subjective relationship to to them and as much as possible they're looking directly into the camera so they're directly looking at you because mm. I used to work as a portrait photographer and my idea was that I was recording a relationship that I had with the sitter the portrait sitter rather than just taking a picture of somebody having their picture taken and that's what i do in my films is is i try and give the audience a very very intimate and subjective relationship with the the person on screen rather than just see them as a talking head you know who's droning on about the olden days have a lot of fun on tour bill we're gonna have so much fun on tour robert aren't we guys Whoa. Yeah. why is that bill well, that's because we have so much fun making mistakes. No, that's not right. We have more fun playing it badly than we do playing it well. I was going to say, I think that does come through. You you feel like you're, as you're watching this movie, you feel like you're a part of this. You know, you're a part of either interviewing the person or being backstage or on the bus. You, you Thank you. You feel like you're along for the ride. Yeah, it's it's not, it's, it's more of a personal experience than watching someone, person A, interview person B. Mm. And when I was doing a lot of... Um... When I was working for MTV in the States, and, and I also presented se several other programs, I had this experience, particularly in America, that, that I felt like I'd turned up for a prearranged pre transaction that was an exchange of sound bites mm. between two, two corporations, effectively. Mm. And, and I just I didn't want to have that in this film. I mean, if there, is, there are bits of the film are out of focus and are poorly exposed and so on, but it feels real the whole way through, I think. And that's really important to me that, that as you say, you, you know, you're sharing this moment with the people on screen. And it does feel like you, you have real interactions like the 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 gentleman i don't know how to pronounce his last name who was the the guitar tech and you know he's doing his thing and he's explaining about how you know there's guitar one guitar two and you know what's the difference i don't really know i just need to know that they need to be ready to go and that's yeah. that's the thing it's it's that's a real it's not like ah oh, yes this is a 1958 bless paul and you know going through it all he's like i got a job to do i'm trying to do my job what else you want to know custom made in japan those Mm. guitars i believe I, I was gonna say i don't think it is a les paul what's that i don't think it was a les paul was it no they look i think they look like les pauls but they're, yeah. they're custom made in for robert in japan i believe okay um yeah biff blumfam gagney he changed his name to that he changed it <laughs> to that <laughs> yes yes bless him <laughs> It's like Benedict Cumberbatch, like, dude, you're going to be famous. You can have a yeah. cool name. You don't have yeah. to have, be yeah. saddled with that. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Hi, this is Steve Hackett. And you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. But no, you, you do bring out the human side. I mean, it's easy to look at Robert as this taskmaster with his you know, very dapper suits and practicing five hours every day, even when he has a two and a half hour performance that night. But with about 18 minutes left in the picture, you capture him 
talking about J.G. Bennett. This is a pretty poignant moment where he is basically silent for a minute and 40 seconds. And most people are like, you got to edit that out, man. It's not moving the story forward. However, I think it totally does. It shows a side of Robert that you've been kind of waiting for throughout the show where he's, it, you know, he's trying not to be emotional. He's still trying to be that hard-boiled English taskmaster. And yet he's going to break into tears 35 seconds in, he almost says something, and he stops himself again. And then another minute, he is silent and still trying to come up with the right words about this man. It was a really impressive piece of filmmaking, that minute and 40 seconds there, Toby. That's kind of you to say. There's another way of looking at it as well, of course, which is that you're talking to a very callous, insensitive individual who, rather than check in on his subject, who might have been having some kind of medical episode, decided just to let it play out uh, for the sake of his film. So I I wouldn't have been a, a presenter and so on if I didn't, didn't have a sort of considerable ego. But one of the things that I have learned as an interviewer is to shut the fuck up as much as you possibly can, you know. And there's that trick where if you don't say something after somebody finishes their first the first sentence of their answer, quite often they will go on to give you another sentence that they didn't mean to, which provides more information. And I sort of, I used to do that quite a lot in my in my work, but then you get into these embarrassing situations where you're dealing with somebody who's been interviewed a lot, they're aware of that. So you suddenly get into a position where you're both staring at each other, waiting for the other person to say something. That's, that's not what happened with, with Robert here. Um, but I, um, I was acutely aware that I was that I was witnessing and recording something quite extraordinary and I didn't know what it was at the time but I did have a strong sense that particularly if people watched that in the company of other people it would make for a very very moving and quite uncomfortable piece of cinema but how it um how it works in the film as well is that it does that thing that I was talking about when I first started talking to you guys that it gives the audience an opportunity to make up their own mind. You know, there's been a lot of a lot of stuff that's happened in the film up to that point. There's a lot mm -hmm. of things for people to process and and contemplate, and it provides a a bit of <sighs> cadence. You know, the 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 editor that I work with on the film, Ollie Huddleston, is not only a very talented and experienced editor of of some really great British obstocks. He's also a musician, and and so you know the film is put together with this kind of musical sensibility, and and so the the mega pause, as as we call it, it does it does create this sort of its its extra cadence, you know, this sense of it's all it's you know it's almost like the pause before when a band walks off stage and before they come back on for the encore or something. Mm. It just you know it 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 creates this nice rhythmic intervention or arrhythmic intervention in in the film and as you say but above all the most important thing is that it provides an opportunity to see robert as a human being and the the first version of the film because i sort of made the film twice the first version of the film robert wasn't really engaging with the character very with the, with the camera very much and okay so the portrait of him that was coming out was was of, of somebody who was grumpy and irascible and it was not just wasn't it certainly wasn't the Robert I knew, you know, socially. And so it was really important that we got a, as full a spectrum as possible of, of Robert's character, 
and that mega pause moment creates that i think it does allow you to see his humanity and it indeed creates a, a, a greater degree an intuitive degree of understanding i think in the audience and we see you know when we see the tears you know it's it's fascinating as well is that i didn't notice until i saw it in a cinema that he cries from both both eyes as well um you just watch the tears very slowly come down his face. But I think there's something so powerful about actually getting to watch somebody's humanity on screen, as you say, for a minute and 40 seconds or whatever, but it feels like about three hours. To yeah. <laughs> but, but I also think that's what we go into cinemas for, is we, we go in to see not ourselves reflected back per se, but to see our humanity reflected back to us. So if, you're, if your film is just made up of heroes and villains, I think it's a bit boring to be honest. Mm, I'm with you there. No, it's it's a brilliant piece of film. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on and, and telling us about uh, this great documentary. Do you want to give uh, folks an idea of where they can see it, where they can get it, where they can find more yes. about you? In the unlikely event you want to find anything about me, my website is www.tobyamies.com. I got several consultants in to help me with the name for that site. And <laughs> Very well done. For some reason, we came up with that. But most importantly, the film is going to be available on all VOD platforms. So that's Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and Vimeo from the December the 1st worldwide. Excellent. Brilliant. Thank you right. so much. And, and congratulations. I mean, very well done document. I'm a sucker for a good documentary, mm -hmm. but a lot of time it's the Eagles documentary basically made by Glenn and Don. And so it kind of gets their side of the story first and last. But this is different. This is special. This is well done. Thank you. It's um, a friend of mine said it's your job as an artist to change the state of the shape of the medium that you work in. And then but also I think if you're working with with a, with a, a band that is full of progressive ideas and you need to you know, you need to be prepared to change and evolve, you know, your approach to things. So I think it was effective in, in that way. And also there are music documentaries out there that I really love. No talk, you know, obviously Spinal Tap, well, technically it's not a documentary, but then also, I don't know if you, have you seen Dig, the Dandy Warhols and Brian Jonestown Massacre documentary? I have not, no. That's very entertaining. It's well worth seeing. Okay, I'll check and that out. And then also, there's another film called Gigi Allen, I'm uh, sorry, Hated, the story of Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies, which is the most wow. extraordinary rock documentary. It starts with Gigi Allen breaking parole and it ends with his funeral. Mm. Oh, goodness. And that was the graduate NYU graduation film of a director called Todd Phillips. Oh, goodness. Yeah, Todd Phillips you, couldn't be much yeah, bigger. Yeah, he went on to make The Joker and so on. So yeah. it's, it's quite extraordinary, movies, yeah. that film. Um, but it's also quite challenging. I was very, I'm sorry, I, I hope I didn't go on too much. It was a very interesting question, so thank you. No, oh. no, no. It, we appreciate it. You All know, right. the one thing I was going to say, too, is that, you know, you're talking about your job as the filmmaker is to make a movie that is interesting for people that have no relationship to the material. Like, I don't know Kim Crimson. I don't really like, you know, never mm. listened to it before, but can you make a movie that somebody can watch and say that mm. was engaging, it was interesting? And I think this is definitely this movie. You will come oh. away with it about the music, but also a study in humanity also. Mm, yes. So it, it was very yeah. interesting to watch. Bless you. Thank you. On that note, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Well done. Uh, and all, all the best of uh, success uh, with, the, with the show on uh, Video On Demand. Thank you very much. Cheers. It is the dream band viewed from outside. It's the band you could do anything you wanted to in it. Pretty cool that we get to, to meet a director of a, 
uh, of a documentary that you know we, we dig so i mean look we, we love musical documentaries rock band documentaries it's always fascinating trying to keep a rock band together is a four or five way marriage but then over 50 years with 19 people i mean it's damn near impossible and i think what he showed us some of it was fascinating uh, the, to me the whole thing was fascinating it was not anything that i was thinking it was going to be i straight up thought it was going to be like and this is how we wrote this song and mm-hmm. you know we met in college or whatever and it wasn't any Anything like that it was a it's a study in the people that are in the band now what they're going through who they are the the level of musicianship but it was interesting when he said there were basically two versions of this mm. i really wonder if it had been somebody else somebody who had no connection with robert had no relationship with him would this thing have come off very differently because they they he knows in the back of his mind this is not the guy what i'm getting is not is not really what it should be mm. Mm-hmm. He needed to press forward. So good for him for doing that. And, and he had to take a little bit, too. I mean, there's that one scene where Robert basically accuses him of, of negatively That's... impacting his performance with the questions that he asked him yesterday. He goes, yeah, because of the questions you asked me yesterday, it, it affected my performance last yeah. night. Where, you know, if he said that to me, I might have picked him up by his neck and say, listen, little man, <laughs> you'll answer my questions and then you can right. go play your little show. I got show some, I got some more to. questions for yeah, you then. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just the, uh, you know, the, that, uh, that's a stupid question. Well, I yeah. mean, come on now. I mean, I'm trying why to, why would job. you ask that question? Ask it a different way. I'm like, well, why would you play that that way? Why, yeah, why that's, you... that's what I was going to say. Yeah. You know, you want me to point out everything? Whoop, missed a note there. Yeah. Hmm. Why is that minor scale and not major scale? Wouldn't it sound so much better? I don't know if I could say that. (laughs) How come you didn't put your fingers like this? But you know, the other thing that was really interesting too was that was that the holy grail of that rack that he's got. Mm. That like basically they were like, if anything happens to this, they don't. This was one of a kind, or they don't make it anymore, or whatever. Like the guitars or whatever. It's this rack that cannot go anywhere. Can It, it can't be compromised. He called some of the technology artifacts, you know, like it's something Indiana Jones dug up out of the desert. You know, it's like giant tubes. And some stuff of this it. is irreplaceable, you know, right. You can't get this back. So, oh, and by the way, you have to move it all over the face of the earth. So good luck. But I do wonder, though, I mean, a lot of times, whether it's a, you know, a movie like the Queen movie, which was more of a theatrical thing. Mm-hmm. That sparked interest in Queen again, and now they get a lot more radio play, and Brian and uh, Roger can tour, mm-hmm. you know, and, and better. And although I, it sounds like he's kind of laid down King Crimson again for about the fifth time or whatever it is, <laughs> I wonder if, you know, after people see this, it might create more interest, and then he would have the desire to maybe pick it back up one more time. Yeah, you never know. I, I think it definitely came across as somebody who was never going to say that's enough. Like he, he's always got something bubbling in his mind. I'm sure in his in his soul, there's always that one more. You know, I'm I'm getting ready for one more tour, one more something. So yeah, I don't know. That would be that would be interesting. I was kind of thinking to myself, man, I, I'd love to see them play live, but I don't know if I could hang that with that crowd like you can be like well yeah i kind of know a couple songs like no No, you have to know every song Mm -hmm. forwards and backwards you have to be ready for everything so that you know when they play that song they haven't done in 20 years you can pull it right out oh i know what this is and i'm not that person i'm I'm not i'm not that guy i mean i have respect for them but it's hard for me to know all that stuff yeah i want to hear satisfaction (laughs) 
But there was that one scene he had with a tour manager. I can't really remember his name right now. It's the one time he brought up toys like, you know, Robert does this to himself. He goes out and he'll spend all of his money. Like he'll put mm-hmm. in a six figure greenhouse, which may be, which may piss off his wife. But he's like, oh, I don't have any more money. Okay. Well, I guess I've got to go out on tour now. Nothing I can do now. Yep. I'd love to stay here, honey, but got, got to go out and work and, and, and make right. that money, you know? So yeah. I guess that's always a possibility. He can go out mm-hmm. and buy himself a McLaren you know, <laughs> racing car and say, oh, well, you know, now that I bought this and I outfitted the garage and I've got insurance and all the spare parts, I got to go back out on the road and make some more. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Well, that was a fun chat with director Toby Ames, who's had a pretty cool career. He worked at MTV. He's worked at record companies. He's worked in the radio. And now he's a director of films, some great documentary films. And his latest, In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50, is out now on video on demand and Vimeo and places where you can see the story of the band, how they involved, and their mercurial leader, Robert Fripp. Really appreciate him coming to speak with us a little bit. And we are happy to be able to see the picture and, and watch it a few times. There's a lot to take in. There's a lot to learn. Whether you're a big King Crimson fan or not, I find rock documentaries fascinating. I'm just something, how can you keep a band together for 50 years? Who's at the heart of it? What's the driving force? And this movie will show all of that, plus a lot more, get into some real humanity and human stories in there. So definitely go check it out. On Demand, Vimeo, wherever you can find it, in the court of the Crimson King, King Crimson, at 50, by director Toby Ames. So we want to know, folks, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You let us know the bands, the albums, the DVDs, the movies, the books, the rock properties you want to hear us talk about here on the show. Make sure you download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you're thinking about it, hey, give us a five-star review. It doesn't matter where you get your podcast. Five-star reviews just help us find more rock fans like you, help us grow the show, help us get more great guests like Toby Amy's on board. And we're coming to the end of the holiday season here, guys, at least the shopping part of it. So make sure you get to our sponsor, rarevinyl.com or rarevinyl.co.uk. Find something that you love or something for that special someone in your life and use code UGLY to save 10% off your order. And go to the Werewolf Store where you can get a t-shirt, a mug, a tumbler, a sticker, something to brighten your holiday mood. You can find that on our Twitter page or X page as I have to call it now. It's at ugly underscore werewolf and jackson's at action jack 72 we're on youtube we're on threads we're on instagram we're on facebook you can find us it's on mac wolf it's if it's not under ugly american werewolf thank you as always to pantheon podcast for making us a happy part of the family thanks as always to our sponsor rarevinyl.com Still a couple of shows left this year, and we don't want to give anything away, but we do hope that you join us. So until next time, to all you rockers all around the world, be cool and keep doing what you do to keep rock alive. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.